morning, church. <clears throat> I have been struggling with my voice all weekend, so if I sound deeper, I've got my uh, shameless friends plug. I've got my Phoebe sexy voice going on this morning. No, but I have been struggling with my voice all weekend, so I've got some water up here. I got my mints up here, so we'll, we'll get through this together. Uh, we started a new series last week on boundaries and setting boundaries of protection for different things in our lives. And Pastor Jim asked if I would speak on boundaries around sin this morning. And so my initial thought when I started planning out my sermon uh, earlier this week is that I would come this morning with fire and wrath and judgment and righteous condemnation. And I would have each of you stand up individually and I would call you out by name and I would list your sins and shortcomings and I would demand repentance. But then midweek, Reverend Brian came in with his newfound ordained wisdom. And he said, Michael, I don't believe that is the grace and mercy and love that Christ has for us. I think you should rethink your sermon. So, with that out the window, I thought we would uh, dive through scripture today. Uh, we're going to start out in Genesis chapter 3 and 4, and we'll end up in Romans chapter 6. And we'll just spend some time this morning walking through Scripture together and looking at what it has to say about what sin is. Because sin is, it is a confusing topic. Um, on the surface level, it seems pretty straightforward. Um, it seems like it's a list of do's and don'ts. But in reality, sin is a whole lot more complicated than that. And so we want to take a look at what Scripture tells us about sin. We want to take a look at what Scripture tells us God's response to sin is. And then we want to take a look at, at Scripture, what Scripture tells us about what our response and re, uh, responsibility should be towards sin. So that's kind of the path that we're going to take uh, this morning. And we'll talk about some boundaries uh, within that discussion. Does that sound good? All right. Or would you rather the fire and wrath thing? Because I can still do that if we want to do that. Anybody? Nobody. Okay. All right. I guess you were right, Brian. All right. Um, so I don't have all these, uh, the scripture uh, that I'm going to read through up. Uh, I'll stop on some key points and, and Bruce will put those scriptures up. But I'm going to start out in Genesis uh, chapter 3, because this is where we first see sin enter the picture with Adam and Eve. And then we'll jump to, to chapter 4, because this is the second picture we get of sin uh, in, in talking about Cain and Abel. But I'm just going to read a passage here from chapter 3, uh, verse 1, chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say to you, uh, you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? The woman's response was, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat 
it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened, and as soon as you eat it, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced, and she saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So here, right away, we see sin is craftier than just an upfront disobedience to God. Sin started as a heart issue, and Eve's initial response isn't a direct, isn't of direct disobedience to God. It's the pursuit of something that she perceives to be good in nature. Fruit's good, right? Food's good, right? Beauty is good, right? Wisdom, knowledge, all good things. I want all of those things. And so if I eat this fruit and receive all of those things, how can that be bad? Sin slithers its way, no pun intended, into Eve's heart. And she disobeys God's will. And so we had this internal shift in the way Eve thought that manifested itself into an external way that Eve behaved. Let's jump over to chapter 4. Now Adam had sexual, sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother named, and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel with his gift, but did not accept Cain with his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? So here, before I go to the next verse, which I'll put up there on the slide, we see a... <clears throat> A change in what's happening here. Before, in the story of Adam and Eve, sin came from an external source. So it wasn't an, 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 it wasn't an internal inclining that, that Eve had to begin with. It was a seed that was planted from an external source, the serpent, Satan. Now that sin has entered the picture, we see sin start to spring up from an internal source. So there's no longer, in, in, the, in the story of Cain and Abel, there isn't this external uh, enticement into sin. Sin seems to be springing up directly from within Cain. There's this anger boiling up because God has accepted Abel's gift, but he hasn't accepted 
Cain's gift. And there's a reason for that. Abel brought the best portions of his firstborn. Abel, with his gift, honored God. Cain, with his gift, simply fulfilled a duty or a role towards God. And so Cain's gift was sinful and outside of God's will, where Abel's gift glorified God. And so God accepted Abel's gift and loved Abel because of it. And he didn't accept Cain's gift. And Cain's response was anger and bitterness and resentment. All internal things that lead towards external responses of sin. And God sees this happening inside of Cain. And so in verse 7, God addresses this and he says, You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. So here in these first two stories, these first two examples of sin in Scripture, we, we see that sin can take all kinds of shapes and forms. We see that sin can come from external um, uh, enticements we see that, or, or sources. We see that sin can come um, from Satan's temptations. We see that sin can come from uh, worldly views and perspectives. And we also see that sin can come from internal thoughts and feelings and desires, uh, uh, desires of the flesh, Scripture later talks about. So it can be external, it can be internal, it can be responses, can also be internal and external. Responses can be thoughts of anger and resentment and jealousy and bitterness. And so sin can be thoughts. You know, Jesus later in Scripture talks about uh, the law in this in this way, he says, you know, I didn't come to, to, to get rid of any of the laws. In fact, I, I came to, to take it to the next level. It's not enough just to be obedient to the law. But if you even think about breaking these laws, you've already, you've already broken them. So sin can be this internal thought or feelings or, or um, uh, these internal struggles and battles. And it can be external uh, so, so these, <clears throat> you've got all these facets that, that sin can, can be. Um, it's not just a list of things you should and, and shouldn't do. Sin really is anything, any thought or action or behavior or uh, feeling or emotion that is outside of the will of God. So sin is a lot more complicated than just a list of do's and don'ts. Sin is anything that is outside of the will of God, whether it be thought or action, that takes us outside of the will of God. And it usually doesn't start as something as dramatic as direct disobedience, uh, where Eve ate the, the fruit of the tree, And it usually doesn't start out as something as drastic as 
Cain murdering his brother in a field, which is what happens in the very next verse in in chapter 4. But it usually starts out as something smaller than that. And if sin left unchecked starts to, uh, almost like a virus, begins to manifest itself throughout our thoughts and our emotions, um, and it starts to take over our heart, and, and Scripture tells us that it's out of our heart the things that come out of our heart that defile us. And so if sin left unchecked starts to manifest itself throughout our heart and takes over our heart and starts to master us instead of us mastering it, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves living lives that are so far outside of the will of God, we don't know how we've gotten there. I've shared, I think, my testimony uh, with you guys before, but I'll, I'll give a, a brief snippet of this because I think um, I've fallen into exactly this pattern. I grew up in the church <clears throat> from a young age. My, my parents, uh, you know, uh, from the time I was born were, were avid churchgoers. My mom worked at the church. I spent tons of time at the church. I was involved in the church, I, you know, Sunday school, preschool, uh, youth group, did all the things um, that we were supposed to. It was at church every Sunday morning. We, my family sat in the front pew. That would have been us right here in the, in the front, front pew. That's where we sat because we were closer to God that way, I think, is what my mom thought. Closer to something that way. Um, but we did all the, the church things. And then, then I went off to college. And, and I left. I grew up in Indiana. Um, I moved down to New Orleans. So if I really get relaxed up here on stage, you'll start hearing the y'alls and I'm fixings and those kind of things. Um, but moved down to New Orleans for, for college. And so I was in a new environment. I was outside of um, my, uh, I don't know what you would call it, my, my, my shelter that, that my family had built for me, my church had, had built for me. I was for the first time in my life out on my own. I knew nobody. Um, it was a new area. Um, kind of a dangerous area, actually, for a, a uh, freshly graduated high school kid, new college kid, to, to go off into by himself. And I had no problem with God at the time. Um, in fact, when I, one of the first things I did when I got down to college was, was to go look for a new church. Um, and so I started visiting some, some churches, and I didn't really find anything that, that clicked. Um, I did attend one church and, and got invited out for lunch afterwards by a, a, a nice couple, which I thought was a, a really fun thing. And so I went and had lunch at their house afterwards, and um, after dinner, they proceeded to tell me how I was going to hell. Um, and I thought, man, we just ate lunch. What have I done? Um, so that kind of put a, a, a bitter thorn in my side. Um, not that that was, but that kind of ended my search. I was like, man, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to find a church. If you've ever, if you've ever moved and tried to find a new church home, you know how difficult that, that, that process is. Um, and so I kind of just gave up on, uh, on trying to find a new church home and, 
was just living life and doing my own thing and um, got in with some people who uh, liked to hang out in the French Quarter a lot um, in the evenings. And if you're familiar with the French Quarter in the evenings, it's, a, it's not the most Christian atmosphere in the world. There's some things that, that go on there that uh, maybe aren't the most upright things. Um, and I started to get into some of those things, and it was a lot of fun. We'd, we'd go out to the clubs and party and have a good time. And um, after a while, I was, a, uh, I was spending less time in class and, and more time out because, you know, I was too tired to get up to go to class the next morning. And then my second year there, I got into some, I made some friends that got into some, some deeper stuff, some, some drugs and things. And so, um, you know, started experimenting with those kind of things. And um, uh, that put me in, in touch with some other crowd. And so before you know it, you know, over the course of a couple of years, um, I had gone from this um, a little church boy um, to this guy who was so far off um, path mixed up with drugs and alcohol and sex and um, all kinds of things. Like, I, I had no comprehension of how I went from, from here to over here. And it, and it wasn't any one giant step or I didn't have any massive thing in my life that I said, God, forget you. I'm going to go. Like, it wasn't... Sin was sneaky, and it just started slipping its way into my life. And I had no boundaries or guidelines set up for myself anymore because when I was a kid, those were set up for me. Like, I didn't have to set those up for myself. When I was in my original environment, I, those boundaries and things were put in place for me. And when I left and moved out of those things, I no longer had those things in place. And so I just started to drift, and, and sin became this drift problem. And left unchecked, it just grew and manifested itself in different ways. And it wasn't until I became physically ill, I became sick, thank the Lord, um, that my life slowed down enough for me to actually take account and see where I had gotten to. And what I had become and and what I was doing to my life and, and how that was impacting the people that I loved and it was a big reality check. And so God is calling us. It's why God, God sees this in, in Cain. And he's saying, hey, listen, watch out. Sin's crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Sin left unchecked will manifest itself in all kinds of scary and dangerous ways. So how do we subdue sin and become its master? Well, there's a couple of different ways that we could go about doing this. A couple of different camps of thought. There was a monk in the early 20th century uh, by the name of Rasputin. And his theory on uh, mastering sin, his theory on salvation uh, is an interesting theory. He lived and taught that uh, the way to salvation was continued, follow me on this, was continued and increasing sin because the more sinful 
the sinner, the more grace received from God when you repent. Temporarily, that is, until you need to sin again to get more grace. So it was this idea that God's grace, and, and hear this because this is a root of sin too. This theory is built on truth. There is no sin that God's grace is not greater than. So there's truth in this theory. There's no sin that God's grace can't overcome. There's no sin that God's grace will not forgive. And so if I want more of God's grace, then I just got to sin bigger over here. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I think maybe that's what some of the Romans might have been thinking. They might have been on this same line of, of reasoning. The Romans were philosophers and theologians, and they were big-time big, th big -time thinkers. And so I'm thinking that might have been what was happening over in Romans because Paul addresses this very thing in the book of Romans. So let's skip on over to Romans chapter 6. We're going to hang out there for the rest of my um, time. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, <clears throat> Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? That's what we were just talking about. Of course not, he says. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in his baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died, verse 4, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by, his glory, by the glorious power of the Father, now we, all, we also may live new lives. Verse 5, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. Verse 6, uh, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified and were crucified with Christ so that sin may lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Verse 7, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. I want to go back to verse 5 for a moment. This united that Paul speaks of is a grafting in. Think of the verse when, when, when Jesus talks about being the vine and we are the branches. This united that Paul's speaking of is a grafting in. It's of a, we are now one with the vine as its branches. And we talk a lot about um, how we die. We talk a lot about in the church about how when we accept Christ, we die to the old self, right? And that's that, that old man within us that has died to sin. So sin is no longer our master. It does not mean that sin is no longer present. That's a falsity. When you, when you make Christ Lord of your life, it doesn't mean that the temptation for sin disappears, it means that you are no longer its slave. You now have the ability to overcome sin. 
But this united with Christ, this grafting in with Christ, does not just end, end there. We are united with Christ not only in his death. Death has no more power over Christ, and death has no more power over us because we have eternal life with Christ. But we are also united with Christ in his resurrection, in his new life. We are one with Christ. And in Christ's resurrection, his life was all about God. His life was all about the Father's will. His life was all about pleasing God. And in our new life, that's what our life is all about too. We are not given freedom from sin. We are not, we are not given freedom from sin. We are not giving given eternal life so that we can live as we please. We are given eternal life. We are given freedoms from sin so that we can live to please God. Did you hear the difference there? This is what I want you to take home. If you take nothing else from what I say this morning. Our battle with sin isn't about earning our way into heaven. It isn't about justifying ourselves to someone else. It isn't about being better than someone else. It isn't... Our battle with sin, when you think, why, why should we have... If, if, if God's grace overcomes sin, why should we worry about it? It's because anytime we are living out our sinful nature, anytime we are spending time outside of God's will, we are far from God, and we are far from who God desires us to be, which inside God's will is the best version of us that we can be. So why wouldn't you want to be taking on this battle and subduing sin and becoming its master because that puts us inside of God's will. It allows God to use us. It allows God to draw us closer to him. It allows God to shine his love through us to reach others. It allows us to glorify God outside of God's will. We can't please God. Inside of God's will is the only way we can. We were given grace and salvation and freedom from sin not to live a life that pleases ourselves, but so that we could live a life that pleases God. And so Paul goes on. I'm going to skip down in verse 12. He says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to the sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. So like I said before, sin does not, because we've given our life to Christ, the temptation for sin does not disappear. Just as God told Cain in, in Genesis, sin is something that you have to face head on and take control. We do this all the time with other things in our life, with important things in our life. It's why we have budgets, right? How many, how many of us have a budget? How many of us don't have a budget? What happens to your money when you don't tell it where to go? 
It goes all kinds of places, doesn't it? That's why we have calendars. Who here keeps a calendar? Who here doesn't keep a calendar? All of you that have got your hands raised up are probably habitually late, aren't you? Right? If we don't, if we don't manage and control our time, it flitters away. Think about a, a bad habit you've had to break. Anybody, any, we got any nail biters in the room, right? How do you overcome that? You give yourself boundaries, right? You do things. I'll go back to my example, my testimony. You know how I overcame where I had gotten to in my life? I had to set up boundaries. What did that look like? I left New Orleans, for one. I had to remove myself from the people and the environment that I had planted myself in. And the best way for me to do that was to cut that hand off. Was to remove myself from that situation so that I had boundaries again. And that was a work in progress. Um, my brother-in-law, I'll give you another example. My brother-in-law, this was incredibly impactful for me. This was early on in my marriage. My brother-in-law is a very godly man, and I, I look up to him uh, a lot. Joe's got a great brother. His name's Josh. And uh, I love hanging out with him. And one day we went to the movies, and we went and saw, has anybody seen Triple X? Sounds like a good Christian movie to go see, right? Vin Diesel fans. We got any Vin Diesel fans in the house? Yeah, Vin Diesel. We went and saw the movie Triple X, and um, it's a fun movie. Come on. It's a fun movie. And uh, there's a scene in the movie where Vin Diesel um, X has, has infiltrated the bad guy's house, right? He's, he's made them think he's one of them, and he's been invited to the party at the, at the bad guy mansion, at the village mansion, or villain's mansion, village mansion. Uh, and they're having a party. And, and at one point in this party, uh, uh, X gets shown to his room and is, um, I don't know, given a woman. Uh, there's a woman that comes into his, into his room and uh, she's half-dressed. And she proceeds to do this seductive dance on X's uh, bed pole. And, I, and there was no nudity shown, right? You know, there was no, you didn't actually, the, the scene blacked out before anything happened, right? But in the middle of this, I look over and I'm sitting next to my brother. I look over and he's got his eyes closed during the scene. He's not going to watch this because he's got boundaries placed in his life where he's not going to let those things in. He'll watch the movie, but if there's things that cross those boundaries, I'm just going to, I'm going to close my eyes and not watch them. Now, if he had watched that scene, would he have gone and committed adultery with a, 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 a woman after leaving the movie theater? Probably not. But he was setting up boundaries beyond where his issues were so that they never became issues. And that's what we got to do, Right? So is, is having a drink sin? I would argue not. But if you have an issue with drinking, 
you probably shouldn't drink. That's a good boundary to have. I'm trying to think of another, another example real quick off the top of my head. Boundaries. If you've got anger issues, you should have things in place that let you recognize those feelings and emotions before they manifest into anger. And you should set up boundaries. You should have a quiet space that you can go to. My wife has three of them in our house that she can retreat to because we have four kids. It's a lot. So we got those things in place, right? The staff here at church has boundaries set up in place to keep us protected from things. Um, Two of the biggest sins that happen within church leadership are money sins and sexual sins. And so there's boundaries that the denomination and our teams put in place. You know, Jim has no access to the church account. We have teams. Of, it's a double-tiered system to manage the, the church's money. Not because J-Road has issues with managing money, but because there's boundaries put in place to keep us from ever getting to that point. You know, when, when Jim or Brian or I uh, meet with another guy, we can do that in our office with a closed door. But if we're meeting with another woman, we've got procedures around that. We need to bring a, our wife into that meeting. Or we have that meeting out in a public space where there's other people. And so they're, they're, they're boundaries. Doesn't mean that you have an issue with this thing. It means that we want to protect ourselves from it ever becoming an issue. The verse goes on to say, Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you, are no longer, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, live under the freedom of God's grace. You have the freedom to be who God created you to be. You have the freedom to bring glory to God through the way you live your life. And the best way to do that is to protect yourself by putting up those boundaries so that you can live your life fully devoted in how God wanted you to live. So here's my call to you, church. Paul in verse 16 says, don't you realize, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to And so you don't need to figure that out but you need to get some boundaries in place so that you can start living that righteous life that God is calling you into. And even though, like I said at the beginning, sometimes those, those sinful pursuits that we go after can seem like good things, if they are outside of the will of God for your life, they are not good. So set up those boundaries. Some of you, some of you here this morning may not realize where your sin issues are. 
And so my ask for you this morning is to spend some time in prayer. Spend some time with God. Asking his spirit to reveal to you and convict in you where those areas are. And then get some boundaries in place. Spend some time just listening to God. He'll tell you. He'll convict you. He'll place those things on your heart that he wants you to address. And then he'll give you the power to overcome them. When you rely on his power, rely on the spirit to convict you and give you strength. God says he won't let us be tempted more than we can overcome with his power. You can't overcome it yourself. We need boundaries and we need the power of the spirit. Let's pray. Father God, oh, we desire so much to be in your will. Of course we want the You are the creator of life. You created each and every one of us. You know us intimately, inside and out, and you know what's best for us. God, help us to submit to you. Help us to live a life of trust and obedience. God, point out to us those areas in our life that we need to let go, that we need to cut off, that we need to place boundaries around to keep ourselves protected. That hedge of protection, God, help us to establish that. Give us your spirit to help us establish that hedge of protection around our lives to keep us centered on your will, God. And then give us the strength that we need to live out that life within your will. A life that glorifies you. A life of righteous living. A life that you called us to live, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.